Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, the podcast that aims to discuss, dissect and demystify the always fascinating and and, uh, often confusing world of oncology and cancer treatment. My name's Michael Fernando and I'm joined as always by my partner in crime and good friend Josh Hurwitz. How are you today, Josh? Oh, great, Mikey. Thanks. Thanks for asking. That's good. So today um, we're going to be talking about one of the most common uh, uh, challenging cases that uh, young trainees will uh, come up against, um, and that is the eternal problem of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And Josh, I think you've got a, a bit of an information packet for us today. Just, just a brief blurb. I, I must admit, Michael, that when I first became an oncology advanced trainee, I hated lung cancer. I thought it was just the the worst tumor stream. But as you progress and learn more, it becomes a lot, you realize there's a lot more options than what there used to be. And that's kind of the introduction I wanted to give. So I'm actually really excited, which is counterintuitive to what I said, but I am really excited to talk about the non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, This is another area of oncology that has seen significant gains in the past five or so years, solidifying the impact of targeted therapy and immunotherapy that will result in better outcomes in metastatic cancer. To clarify, so early stage lung cancer, so stage one to stage three, is generally treated, treated with curative intent with a combination of chemo, surgery, radiation therapy, or combination modality approach. 85% of lung cancers that are diagnosed are non-small cell lung cancer, and the other 15 are small cell, and that's another topic upon itself. Most patients that we see are actually diagnosed with advanced lung cancer, meaning that they're not candidates for surgery. People ask me, especially my patients, they ask, why, Josh? And the reason is quite simple a lot of patients who are diagnosed as lung cancer are actually asymptomatic at the time of diagnosis, meaning that you need quite a high burden of disease to present with shortness of breath, or coughing up blood, or those classic symptoms that you might expect from a lung cancer patient or even a cancer patient. Now, a little bit about the epidemiology. So globally, about 1.8 million deaths in 2020 from lung cancer. And in 1953, just heading back 70 years. It was the most common Just to your, to your childhood, Josh. Well, I always get jealous, Michael. You have some great facts, and I want to have like a little, some cute little facts that I can add as well. I don't know if this is a cute fact, though. So not, in 1953, it was the most common cause of cancer in men. And then in 1985, it was actually the leading cause of cancer in women. Now, originally, we used to separate non-small cell lung cancer from small cell lung cancer. Uh, and that was that was the difference. It was small cell or non-small cell. It was nothing else. In 2008, they then started to include the subtypes. So this is the histological subtypes of adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. And again, we can talk about squamous cell carcinoma in further detail in another, another podcast episode. And it, is more a, it is a completely different kettle of fish, squamous cell. It is, yes. And there's always so many, so many fish to uh, catch in the oncology world. Um, and more recently, we've got genotyping and testing looking for the first first one that we all hear about, so pdl one expression or immunotherapy, really, and the second being genotype subtype, so specifically epithelial growth factor receptor, and EGFR is kind of the acronym that we use, ELK, 
Kras, Ceros, and there's other ones as well. A lot of them that are actually getting targeted therapy now that more research has been funneled into lung cancer. This is really the horizon of tailored medicine or tailored healthcare in the oncology setting, meaning that this initial evaluation will definitely direct patients' care and their outcomes based on what we're available to give them. One, one final thought. Mikey, before I uh, kind of hand over, um, is that smoking, so people who smoke, more likely to get squamous cell carcinomas and people that don't smoke are more likely to get adenocarcinoma. Now, the histological subtypes actually changed a lot from the 50s where it was very much squamous dominated and now as a lot of the public health policies are being pushed into the fore, it's becoming more adenocarcinoma. And one final thing is to talk about what the treatment options are just from an early stage perspective, moving into a later stage perspective. So if you're thinking of stage one or stage two non-small cell lung cancer, surgery is your primary option. Like if it's surgically receptible, I'll say that again, if it is surgically resectable, cut it out, right? Chemotherapy in this setting doesn't have a great benefit. It's about five or 10%. But watch this space because there is currently quite some high-level research going on looking at neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy, which has got some good results, but not talking about that this time. Um, Stage 3, if it's early stage 3, it's chemoradiotherapy. And if it's advanced, then it's chemoradiotherapy followed by immunotherapy. But today we're talking in the metastatic setting, and I might hand over to Mikey to give us just a little bit of a case. Um, And I hope I haven't uh, confused everyone, but we will leave some links just for sort of treatment protocols as well if you're interested in the bio and michael take it away yeah um it it is a very interesting sort of journey that lung cancer has gone on uh josh and and obviously the main thing is uh is smoking secondhand smoke and and these targeted therapies so i guess um the case we've got is a uh man in his uh 60s who comes to you with a diagnosis of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. It is um, adenocarcinoma, so most common. He's pretty fit and well. His ECOG performance status, so his his measure of sort of activity and his ability to uh, fulfil his activities of daily living is, uh, you'd say, zero to one. Um, and uh, he's got, uh, obviously, metastatic, unresectable disease. He sits down in front of you and says, Doc, what are you going to do for me? Um, we'll talk about the, um, the various targets in a moment in, in the context of the two trials we're looking at today. Um, but, uh, let's, let's just say your, uh, the initial, uh, histopathology has a, um, PDL1 expression, uh, so a program death ligand one expression of, uh, let's call it 48%. But frustratingly, as so as is so often the case, um, particularly in in uh, centres with high turnover and obviously the the uh, ever present COVID knocking off staff and what have you, um, uh, the uh, molecular panel, the mutation panel, is not back yet. So, with that in mind, we'll talk about the first and probably statistically speaking more likely um, treatment uh, regimen, which is that contained in the study Keynote One Eight Nine. Um, Keynote is uh, uh, a, a title that refers to hundreds and hundreds of studies uh, at this point, um, and they all confusingly ha- uh, sort of look at different. 
cancer types. So remembering the numbers is is always tricky, but 189 is certainly one that our listeners should remember because it's very commonly used. And what the um, Keynote 189 study was looking at is uh, combining chemotherapy with immunotherapy, the immunotherapy being pembrolizumab. Um, in the in the blurb for the, the study, the introduction for the study, there are a couple of um, points that were um, uh, that were notable, um, and uh, one of them was that at the time of the uh, at the time of the study's uh, publication, less than half of patients with metastatic lung cancer re- reached second line therapy. So really, it's one and done for a lot of people. And that's mainly because lung cancer is very, very nasty and patients frequently deteriorate and become not candidates for further therapy very quickly. Yeah, I I think, Michael, I I did forget to talk a little bit about prognosis uh, in my introduction, but a couple of stats that are worthwhile knowing. So if you had an early stage lung cancer, the likelihood of recurrence after surgery is about 50%. And the three-year overall survival rate going back to, I think it was 2011, was about 27%. Uh, and those who had extensive disease was far less than that. So we are now seeing patients with these new treatment modalities get to second-line therapy and be well enough to be candidates for potential trials as well if they progress. So this is a huge change of what it was even I'd say four years ago, maybe five years ago when it started coming in and the trials were just finishing up where people do respond, they maintain their health and we actually see them clinically improve. And, and that is definitely something that is um, becoming more of a, more of an area of focus, I guess, is what do we do after this first line treatment, which as you said, Josh has completely changed the landscape of, um, of a terrible, terrible disease. Um, what do we do after that? So we are at the point where, you know, patients are sure they're progressing on this study, but they're still well enough to have treatment. They're not having the first line treatment and then rapidly deteriorating. So it is, um, uh, so that, that was one of the main things. The other thing is that, um, patients, uh, I'll talk briefly about PDL one status first, though. Um, so PDL one is a ligand that is expressed and aims to, uh, I guess, cloak the cancer, um, uh, deceive the immune system into thinking that the cancer is a self cell. And we've talked uh, about sort of the mechanism of immunotherapy in our melanoma episode, so I won't go into too great a detail. But the different thing with lung cancer and the important thing to note. And this will be borne out in the in the results from the trial is that PDL one expression is a continuum, so it is expressed as a percentage a percentage of cells that express PDL one in a given sample, and the trials have broken it up into effectively three groups. There's less the uh, less than one percent expression, one to forty nine percent expression, and 50, uh, greater than fifty percent expression, but. The subtleties in that sort of continuum are that, sure, you, you can have two patients that are technically greater than 50%, but there is evidence to show that the more the higher expression of PD-1, the more likely you are to have a response to immunotherapy, which stands to reason. So two patients, one with 53% and one with 90% uh, expression of immunotherapy, the responses might be vastly different. So even though the breakdown is is sort of um, 
this very crude zero one to forty nine greater than fifty. Um, the continuum, uh, the continual nature of PDL one expression is important to keep in mind, especially when you're making treatment uh, decisions. Um, so, without further ado, um, I'll. Uh, just go through this very quickly. I won't get too into the weeds as we try not to on this podcast. But Keynote 189 was a double-blind phase three study that uh, recruited in several uh, centres across the world. Inclusion criteria? <laughs> just several centres? <laughs> just several centres. Just just a, just a handful of centres. Nice. Um, uh, uh, so the, um, uh, the main inclusion criteria that I will talk about are um, patients had to be ECOG 0 to 1, so like any trial in the cancer space, they have to be fit enough to um, control for confounding factors. Um, patients also had to be mutation negative, and this is something that we'll, we'll discuss briefly later on. Um, but patients with EGFR and ALK, which was coming to prominence at, at roughly the same time, were actively excluded from the trial. Uh, patients were also excluded if they have um, symptomatic uh, CNS uh, METs, um, so symptomatic untreated METs um, in the brain or spinal cord, uh, if, or if they had a history of pneumonitis or autoimmune disease, and that comes back to this phenomenon of immune-mediated adverse events. Patients were assigned in a two-to-one ratio, and, and the reason that I've uh, been told that trials sometimes do this is they're so convinced that um, their uh, trial um drug is going to have benefit for patients that they want to, I guess, provide more strength in confirming their hypothesis, but also make it more attractive to patients um, uh, to get them enrolled. So if you think if you're uh, thinking about it from a patient's point of view, um, if you are said, look, you're you might get the trial drug, you might get the placebo, but you're twice as likely, or you you two-thirds of the time, you have a two-thirds possibility of having the trial drug versus one-third of the placebo, more people are likely to enroll because mm. uh, the f- fear of getting the placebo is, is actually quite a significant barrier to patient enrollment in trials. It's really difficult though, isn't it? Because when trials aren't blinded and you know you're getting the potentially, or well, A, the existing standard of care or be potentially an inferior drug, especially for a phase three, a lot of people will drop out. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And and especially at the, that fear was probably compounded in this trial because it's a first-line trial. So the, these aren't patients who, are, who have progressed through multiple lines of treatment and are really looking at a trial or nothing. These are patients who have just been diagnosed and are sort of, uh, I guess, putting their trust in uh, what turned out to be an excellent treatment, but, you know, there was no way to act- actually know that ahead of time uh, definitively. Um, but that's that's one of the uh, one of the explanations for why it was randomised in this two to one fashion. The two arms were so patients got four cycles of uh, chemotherapy, and the chemotherapy was either cisplatin or carboplatin, a platinum based chemotherapy plus pemetrexate, and this is the standard of care for uh, from a chemotherapy perspective um, for lung adenocarcinoma. Um, and then the uh, difference in the two arms was. Patients either received pembrolizumab or a matching placebo, so it was blinded. Um, patients were uh, patients' treatment was continued until evidence of progression or intolerance, um, and the primary endpoints were overall survival and progression-free survival. Secondary endpoints also looking at response rate, duration of response, and safety. And there was a, a planned stratification into subgroups uh, by PDL one status, which comes back to that continuum that we mentioned before. 
So a fairly large study, 616 patients ended up being uh, randomized with a median age of around 65 years old. The majority were male, um, 62% and 53% respectively um, in the uh, trial arm and the control arm. Majority were ECOG-1 and the vast majority in both were uh, current or former smokers, 88% in both um, groups. 17% in both uh, arms had uh, brain metastases. Obviously, they were either asymptomatic or had previously been treated. And in terms of the pdl one breakdown, 31% of patients in both arms or thereabouts had less than 1% pdl one expression. 64% of patients uh, had greater than 1% percent uh, expression. The reason for those two numbers not adding up to 100 is there were a, a small number of patients where the pdl one status could not be determined. And this happens not infrequently in clinical practice where you have problems with sampling or, you know, the um, uh, tumour is so um, uh, de-differentiated and aggressive that you actually cannot um, assess for pdl one status. So there was about um, 10% of patients who didn't have, um, who, who weren't able to assess, 5 to 10% of patients who weren't able to assess pdl one In terms of the breakdown of the patients who had greater than 1% expression, 31% uh, in the Pembro arm and 28% in the control arm had uh, expression of 1% to 49%. 32% in the uh, Pembro arm and 34% in the placebo arm had greater than 50%. But again, there was no data on where people sat in that continuum. So we don't know if, for example, the 32% of patients in the Pembro arm who had greater than 50%, we don't know how many were sitting at 90% or how many were sitting at 51%. So um, that I don't think that they've um, had data on that to follow, but just something to keep in mind. In terms of um, overall survival, so in the initial analysis, the overall survival in the pembrolizumab actually wasn't reached after a median follow-up of around 10 months, which for lung cancer is completely mind-blowing. This is a, a disease that before the advent of immunotherapy, the median survival was about six to eight months from diagnosis to death. Um, so to have a um, treatment that uh, you cannot immediately tell in, in over the course of about a year what the median overall survival is, is ridiculous. Um, it would be, for reference, the uh, survival in the chemo alone arm was 11.3 months, so doing better than the equivalent trials uh, looking at the chemo alone. Um, the hazard ratio was 0.49, so you are have a greater than 50% um, redu reduction in your risk of death which is, again, ridiculous. Um, in the most updated um, analysis, the median overall survival was uh, 22 months um, in the pembrolizumab arm. So uh, we frequently tell patients w when they ask that age-old question, how long am I going to get on this treatment? We frequently say, or I frequently say, you're looking at sort of a year and a half to two years based on the trials. And then you throw in all of the, all of the provisos that we do with uh, prognostication. And I think the provisors are an important point because, as you said, Marky, with higher PDL1 expression or better kind of response, people could be in where we talk about these long term responders now. So, the subgroup of patients who, despite completing all their treatment, they don't follow the graphs. They're not relapsing at that 18 month period. They're still alive at three, four, and even five years' time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the opposite is true. There is a subset of patients who, when given immunotherapy, and I, I don't know if there's, uh, there's evidence as to whether immunotherapy is actually the cause or whether they just have really bad protoplasm, but there is this phenomenon of hyperprogression where patients' cancers progress well beyond what uh, much faster than one would expect. So, you know, you, when you're talking to patients, uh, you do have to sort of say, you, this is the average based on a trial. The trial doesn't necessarily apply to you because you weren't in it. And so it might be more, it might be less. Yeah. Um, and that's basically not, you know, cynically, it's to protect us as physicians, but also it's to make sure that the patient has realistic expectations, which is very important. Um, so now we come to the, the sort of, um, differences in, in, in the spectrum of PDL one expression, and I'll just, uh, express these via hazard ratios. So, you know, in terms of overall survival in the patients who had no PDL one expression or less than 1%, the hazard ratio was 0.59, still not bad. Um, but it just gets better and better. So in patients who had 1% to 49%, the hazard ratio was 0.55. And in patients who had PDL one of greater than 50%, the hazard ratio was 0.42. So the majority of the benefit, one could argue, um, is being, or not the majority, but a significant proportion of the benefit is being driven by the patients who had a high PDL one expression, which illustrates the point I was making before. In terms of progression-free survival, now progression-free survival is always a tricky um a marker in any immunotherapy trial for various reasons that we've discussed previously. Um, but the hazard ratio was 0.52 um, and the absolute numbers were 8.8 versus 4.9 months. So again, we're looking at almost doubling of, um, of progression-free survival. And it's a similar um, phenomenon with the PDL one expression. In less than 1% group, the hazard ratio was 0.75. In the 1% to 49% group, the hazard ratio was 0.55. And in the greater than 50% group, the hazard ratio was 0.36. So again, you are seeing a spectrum. Um, the uh, in, in terms of looking at subgroups, uh, the most important one that I picked out was patients who had CNS disease. So patients who had brain mets or less commonly spinal mets. And the patients who got pembrolizumab did appear to do better. Now it is sort of smaller, smaller numbers, but it, there is an indication, and I think this has been borne out in, in subsequent literature, that immunotherapy does have very good CNS penetrance, far better than chemotherapy by itself. So um, if you have uh, patients with CNS disease, then um, immunotherapy is always an option. Um the adverse events, fairly unremarkable, I guess, in terms of uh, what this shows. The most common um, side effects in both arms were cytopenias, which really comes from the from the platinums, um, which is you know been known about for twenty odd years. In terms of the um, the immune related um, adverse events, again, nothing un, un, untoward here, nothing unusual here. In the most common um, side effects overall were hypothyroidism, pneumonitis, and hyperthyroidism. But uh, the serious um, adverse events, and these accounted for sort of 2% or less of overall numbers, were pneumonitis, dermatitis, nephritis, and hepatitis. So, and, and, and that, I don't know about you, Josh, but that sort of bears out my, my clinical practice as well. You see endocrine axis issues most commonly, um, but when things go bad in sort of that two to five, five to 10% of patients, you know, it's, it's the lungs, it's the, it's the liver. Um, and I guess less frequency, it's the less frequently it's the, it's the kidneys. 
And you can't forget the bowels and the skin. Yeah, so in, interestingly, the, the um, incidence of colitis wasn't uh, didn't crack the top three. Um, see, see, funny. I, I think I think from a clinical experience, I think colitis is probably in the top three. I don't I don't know about you, hmm. but I've seen a lot of patients that get colitis and bad colitis. Yeah, that that is interesting because um, because for me, um, and and I had a run of these just a couple of weeks ago. Um, the most common one with Pembro that I've seen is hepatitis. Uh, you know, there was a a new patient's uh, LFTs would come across my desk, and and the nurse would say so and so's liver is off, and I'd, I'd uh, look, and sure enough, they'd be taking uh, they'd be on pembrolizumab. So, um, I, I think that does speak to the fact that these side effects are quite, are quite idiosyncratic and, you know, different people are going to have different experiences. Very true. Um, so look, in summary, if you have a patient sitting in front of you with uh, a, I think the, the um, standard at this point, because immunotherapy works so well in patients with a higher PD-L1, um, the chemo immuno combination is is most commonly used in patients with this sort of low to moderate um pdl1 expression because the evidence is there it is better than chemotherapy alone i i think i don't think there is um there are many patients who don't have a contraindication that you would not add immunotherapy to a chemotherapy backbone um there is sort of ongoing um debate i guess as to what the threshold at which you can can the chemotherapy and just put the patient on immunotherapy is i've heard 50 percent. i've heard 70 percent. i've heard 80 percent. um but i think if you have a patient that you're not really sure about who is young fit and obviously doesn't have any contraindications you want to front load their treatment because as we said a significant proportion of patients and i still think this is the case despite advances in treatment a significant proportion of patients with lung cancer will not see round two so they will not get to uh, a further treatment um will um you you want to give them the com- combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, uh, and this was borne out um, in the in the follow up as well in the subsequent follow up. In that, only thirty percent of patients in the um, uh, chemo immuno group had received subsequent therapy, and forty six percent of patients uh, in the um, placebo group received subsequent therapy. So we are still looking at a significant patient, proportion of patients where this is their only chance, and if they can take it you really, really should front load them with uh, with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. But, yeah. Josh, what if they have a mutation? Just to muddy the waters, uh, which is what oncologists love to do. So the other side of treating people, and we alluded to it earlier on, is what happens if they have a known mutation, as in an epithelial growth factor receptor mutation or another mutation? And this is where the FLORA trial comes in. Now, Mike, I'm going to ask you a question just because I think it's a little bit more interesting than me just yattering on. What's the most common demographic of patients when they present to your clinic with their metastatic lung cancer, would you expect them to have this kind of mutation? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, Josh. Um, Look, red flags for me where I say, ooh, we better check this. Um, I mean, we nowadays, because it's widely available, we check it in everybody because it, yeah. you do get surprises. Um, 
but uh, the stereotypical patient is someone who is young, female, never touched a cigarette in their life, um, and in terms of ethnicities, Asians, and interestingly also people of Polynesian, so uh, Maori, Samoan, um, you know, Fijian, um, those sorts of demographics are at much higher risk. Having said that, I will say, like I said, and not to go too off topic here, but I had a patient who <laughs> was uh, 89. He was from, I think, Iraq or Iran, uh, smoked like a chimney, had smoked like a chimney all his life. And when I spoke to him, he basically told me to piss off and let him go home so he could smoke and drink. Um, and I thought, you know, there's no way this guy is going to have a mutation. And sure enough, he had an EGFR mutation. So even though, you know, we talk in, we talk in things that are common, because this is the, the the molecular tests are widely available, you really should do them on everybody because you will be surprised. And as you'll as as Josh will illuminate our listeners uh, with such clarity and verve, um, it does make a huge difference. That is true, and I do love to illuminate with such verve. It you're does so make you're such and you're <laughs> so illuminating, Josh. <laughs> Thank you, Mikey. So the only other thing to mention before I talk about this trial is about 15% of non-small cell lung cancers will have an EGFR mutation. Evidently, that percentage is high in certain subgroups, as Michael mentioned, but that's kind of the ballpark figure, about 10 to 15%. So what was the FLORA trial? So when the FLORA trial came out, it was looking at osimertinib, which is a third-generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, what this did is it was looking to potentially replace the existing treatment regimens, and that being that of allotinib and gefitinib, as being a better drug, better tolerated, better efficacy. So the flora was really, as I just said, first line osimertinib versus allotinib or gefitinib for EGFR mutated advanced non-small cell lung cancer. It was conducted in treatment-naive patients, so those who hadn't been treated with advanced cancer and had an EGFR exon 19 or 21 mutation, and they were allowed in the trial they had stable CNS mets were permitted. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoint, there was quite a few of them, and I've written them down here, was overall survival, objective response rate, duration of response, and disease control rate. So this trial was a phase three. It was stratified according to EGFR mutation or race, and they were assigned to OSI or standard therapy. They were continued until treatment progression, and it was double-blinded trial, which is really important, right, because you all want the new drug if you've already got the drug that really does work. Crossover was actually allowed upon progression and if they had a confirmed T790M mutation. Looking at, and this is the thing, this this trial just blew us away, like the immunotherapy, it had really amazing responses. But before I talk about that and to keep you on the edge of your seat, it was predominantly, uh, as far as kind of the uh, demographics go for, for men, it was kind of pretty similar between men and women, um, predominantly more Asian than white patients or Caucasian patients. And most patients in this particular trial had uh, never smoked, actually, which is quite, I found quite interesting. Um, oh my gosh, there goes my my information. And a lot of people had an ECOG performance status of one, so about 60% one, and then 40% was uh, ECOG performance status of zero. And most patients had metastatic disease as well. So 
that, that that's kind of setting the scenario, right? Looking at the progression-free survival, um, Michael, you, do you know what the hazard ratio was for this? You don't it have was some, to, I've got it in front it, of me. <laughs> it was something ridiculous. Um, was it like 0.3 or 0.2 something? No, no, we're close-ish. Um, so progression-free survival. And by that he means not at all. Look, you know what? You're always right until you're not right. Um, no, progression-free survival is about zero point. Uh, sorry, hazard ratio of zero point four six. Uh, with a p oh, that's positively pred- pedestrian, Josh. Positively, so like you know, there's over a fifty percent chance, you know, fifty percent reduction in the risk of you progressing or dying. Um, and if you're looking at the median, it was eighteen point nine months versus the control arm of ten point two months. So already you had a drug which worked. And this is now a new drug, which has almost doubled the existing drugs PFS. When you look and at people is, with... Sorry, sorry and that, that is an important point, is that a lot of Jafitnib were no slouches. They were much better than the equivalent chemotherapy. So it's important to, to realise that this is an improvement on an already good pair of drugs, and which makes the, uh, the hazard ratios and the numbers all the more incredible. That's it. And if you're looking at people with CNS metastases, so people who have brain cancer as well, they generally do poorer than those that do not. And you can see in the intervention arm of OSSI, it was 15.2 months versus 9.6 months with, again, a hazard ratio of 0.47, also statistically significant. Um, Those without CNS metastases also had a hazard ratio of 0.46. So, you know, marginally, marginally better, but still you could have brain mets or no brain mets. It obviously worked. With this particular trial, so I think the median, oh, what was the follow-up? I forget exactly, but essentially they didn't have enough follow-up and the uh, overall survival wasn't reached at that point in time. Um, So actually I do have it here. So it was about 15 months was the the, the median follow-up and look it essentially benefited all subgroups so all performance statuses all smoking histories all races whether being asian or non-asian demographics and age as well so that was really really something right the other there's a couple of other small things that i want to talk about is complete response so in about three percent of patients there was a complete response. I know it's only seven patients, but it's still something, right? And about 77% of patients got a partial response. So that plus, so let's say 80% of patients who were given this treatment had at least some response. And if you add on to the patients that had stable disease for more than six weeks, that went to 97%. 97%, Michael. Like, I, you don't see that, that number very often. Those aren't those aren't numbers that we're very familiar with in oncology. No, and it, you and then you go down to the next line. So objective response rate was eighty, you know, eighty percent. Disease control rate they they stole it. Well, I, I worked out the ninety seven percent by calculating, but it was ninety seven percent. And again, overall survival wasn't something we could really predict. Now, there was a couple of other brief things I wanted to mention, but the thing, the other good things about this was also duration of response. People took about six months to respond, and that was pretty similar to the first and second line therapies as well, so gefitinib and allotinib. So that's really important to note. And then I have another article that I'm just going to briefly talk about. Just and... just before you do, Josh, you you mentioned that um, you know very very significant um, 
uh, improvement in progression-free survival. But, but as we know, progression-free survival does not a benefit make. Um, there have been many studies in the past that have sh- had initial, uh, you know, positive responses with um, progression-free survival and it's published first because it's a much quicker metric. Um, yes. And then the overall survival data comes out and, um, you know, it's it's not as sort of, I guess, good. Um, do we have any overall survival data for Osimertnib? He said in a very loaded fashion. Well, I'm so I'm so thankful that you asked this question, Michael. Um, I actually was just bringing up the results of the five year overall survival uh, data, which uh, if you'd let if you'd let me, I was going to tell you, but you jumped the gun. But I'm happy. I'm I'm just enthusiastic. I'm I'm raptured by your presentation. Uh, you know what? I'm sure you're not, but that's more than okay. Okay, so this is it, right? The median overall survival, the hazard ratio for the five years was zero point eight. Okay, so look, not as good as PFS, but it was statistically significant and definitely better than the competitive arms. And, you know, that's that's definitely something. And there was still about 30% of patients who were still receiving it as first line at that three-year mark. And this is at, and this is at five years in lung cancer, which, you know, is still um, something that in this space hasn't been beaten. I no, that's it. No, no, there's, well, at least from my understanding, there's nothing better than Osimertinib on the market at the moment. Mm, yeah, I think, it's, it's particularly in Australia, I think the only thing that comes cro- close is potentially lorlatinib in the ALK-positive al- space, which we'll talk about in a separate episode. But, yeah, definitely one of the high flyers. And, you know, we are looking at 38 months in patients with metastatic lung cancer, again, a disease that frequently kills people in less than six months in um before these treatments oh exactly and like any good trial we have to talk about toxicity so of course to summarize so far yes there's an overall survival benefit yes there's a progression free survival benefit yes it's not chemotherapy but there are toxicities so the most common being that of diarrhea followed by a rash followed by kind of nail problems and dry skin right and if we're looking at severe toxicities i think yes diarrhea is probably up there with the higher ones uh prolonged qt interval you can also get and i'm pretty sure maybe i'm wrong but i thought with these i guess not i thought you could get pneumonitis but i don't think you can i think that might be one of the things that's come out and and is more uh I guess, uh, noticeable in the clinical space as opposed to the trial space, because it's definitely an association. Yeah, that's what I thought as well, but it's, it's not here. So there are a number of toxicities, but again, far less than chemotherapy, and most of our patients do pretty well. You also have to think about liver derangement. That's also uh, side effects. And I've also seen people with low platelets, um, interesting enough. So that's something that's just randomly I've seen. Um, but overall, like, it's a it's a great drug. It almost doubles what we had with uh, Jafitinib and Elotinib. And also you can use it in a T790M mutation space, which over at least, I think over few, at least over 50% of patients have that particular EGFR mutation. Yeah. The, the T790M is probably going to be much less of an issue, uh, issue nowadays, though, because... At least in Australia, Osimertinib has um, come onto the PBS's first line, I think, a couple of years back. And so 
um, if you're not giving people osimertinib first line, you're not giving them the best treatment, and so there won't be any need to look for the T790M. No, but previously when it wasn't there, we always had to check for it. It was one of those. Yeah, which was a real pain because you always had to re-biopsy a patient and they're like, I've already had a biopsy. Why do I need another one? And then you have to explain, you know, mutations and, and all of that sort of stuff, which can be quite challenging. And the issues with getting a proper lung biopsy where you're going to get enough tissue to actually look at this. Yeah, or, or a biopsy anywhere, I guess. Yeah, true. Do we want to go into the question section, Michael, and I can start? <laughs> well, um, Josh, I, so I guess coming back to our case, you know, if if, if this uh, this young, uh, relatively young by our standards patient, um, the EGFR status isn't back yet, which happens unfortunately more frequently than we perhaps would like. Um, they are fit at the moment, but you're worried and whether it's because of burden of disease, they might have uh, a liver full of Mets and their LFTs are starting to show a bit of strain or they might have, um, you know, other critical disease uh, that for whatever reason is not, uh, is not amenable to radiotherapy um, uh, or, you know, other surgical uh, approach. Um, so effectively they're young, relatively they're fit relatively and they need treatment sooner rather than later and and you know your pathology department has been has been completely decimated by covid you have no idea when the egfr status will be back and you're not really comfortable waiting what do you do i so you got two options here so you need a biopsy you need to re you either need to get the tissue sample sent somewhere else to get that egfr mutation but if let's say you're on an island somewhere and that's just not feasible you're on a you magical would, island yes magical island. you'd probably give them the first cycle of chemotherapy just to start their treatment withhold the immunotherapy at that point and why is that josh so there's a number of reasons i guess but the the biggest thing is that a rechallenging with immunotherapy and the pbs criteria you can't technically do that so if you use immunotherapy once and then you switch to a uh you know, TKO or EGFR inhibitor, that could potentially cause some problems. Secondarily, the efficacy of the EGFR inhibitor in the context of already being treated with immunotherapy, I think there's higher rates of pneumonitis for that. And uh, Particularly also, with osimertinib, I think. Particularly with mm-hmm. Ossie. And finally, if you, you give these treatments every three weeks, right? That That's the protocol for the chemo immunotherapy and osimertinib is given daily. So... If it's one cycle of chemo just to kind of hold everything at bay for three weeks to get this guy or girl on osimertinib, then we should definitely do that because let's say they last a good three years. You know, they're on this treatment for three years, have a fantastic quality of life. I'm switching her. So now she's a 47-year-old non-smoker Asian female, (laughs) Michael, and she's progressed on her osimertinib and you're looking for what to do next line. What are your options? <laughs> yes, I, I will uh, answer that uh, in one second. Your, your reasons for giving the chemo were were um, very good. I will add one thing, though, and that is that um, in terms of giving the chemo as opposed to the immuno, the reason for withholding the immuno is missing the f- or not, not giving immuno for the first round is probably not changing much from that perspective. Immunotherapy is very much a long game in that you are um, extending the duration of response, you're extending survival. But in the short term, and this is something that has been seen with with many trials, 
Um, immunotherapy takes about two months to start working. So if you look at an immunotherapy only trial, the, the curves are often in favor of chemotherapy or other therapy for the first couple of months and then immunotherapy comes through. So immunotherapy is very much a long game treatment. And so missing the first dose of immunotherapy to um, get all of the information, save the patient from very problematic pneumonitis um, or p- that the potential thereof. And also, as you say, not um, in Australia, at least not throwing up issues with, uh, with uh, prescribing is it's, it's a, a lot to sort of gain in terms of clarification without much lost. But coming back to your question, Josh, um, the, the inevitability, I guess, of treatments failing, none of our treatments are forever. Um, so there is another study, which we won't go into in great detail, but there is sort of a paucity of data on what to do after someone progresses on targeted therapy with an EGFR mutation. And like I said, in Keynote 189, that's probably representative of most of the data in this space where if you had a mutation, you were excluded which sort of makes sense, I guess, from a patient perspective, because you're not going to do a trial for patients uh, looking for a benefit of, say, you know, median overall survival of 22 months when there's a treatment that has a median overall survival of 38 widely available. That's that's not ethical and not attractive to the patient themselves. Um, But there was one trial that didn't do that, and I suspect it predated a lot of this, and that's Empower 150, which was a study of non-squamous metastatic non-small cell lung cancer that had a a quad regimen of uh, platinum chemotherapy, paclitaxel, uh, so not uh, not pemetrexed, bevacizumab, which is an anti-VEGF inhibitor, very commonly used in the gastro space, the GBM space, and atezolizumab, which is another um, anti-PDL1 uh, immunotherapy. And they included patients with an EGFR mutation, very, very small numbers. But it, the reason this is sort of standard of care as for a second-line therapy for patients after is, is that it is, as far as I'm aware, the only study, certainly the largest study, that has included and investigated um, uh, patients who have had who have an EGFR mutation. So we know that ABCP, um, the quad therapy, does have a benefit in patients um, compared to the comparator arm from memory was bevacizumab alone, BCP. Um, so bevacizumab plus chemo, sorry. Um, so there is a benefit in patients with EGFR um, because they were included. It's small, the data's not great, but it's there. So if you have a patient who has... Um, who has progressed on losimertinib, um, which is really the only uh, EGFR um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor that you should be prescribing as first line these days, um, then the next step is ABCP, which of course makes things tricky if they're a little bit frail and you're not really sure how well they'll cope with that, but that is the standard of care. That's a, that's a good answer. And the final thoughts I think we should add is that with a lot of these EGFR inhibitors, there's lots of research going into mechanisms of resistance. So you might be asking the question, why aren't they working? And Mm. the cancer becomes smart and becomes resistant to these drugs. And then you kind of have to look at ways to either adjunct it or change to sort of still target that treatment. So that's primarily the reason why these drugs become, these cancers grow despite being on really effective treatments initially. Yeah, and I guess that that also um, 
sort of obliquely leads to a, a, another point with these patients is that, you know, you should always, always see if there's a trial available, um, particularly for patients where there's a there's probably a significant drop-off between first and second line. Um, look, there always is, you know, you put your best treatments first. But for patients where there's, you know, one great treatment and not a whole lot else, then you should always fish around for trials. And um, whether that means sending them to a bigger centre or a different centre, you know, a, a lot of these patients can get quite significant benefits if there is a trial available. So you should always keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah. And the best thing about these drugs is that it's really, it's really, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air into this, this space really. because It's a very depressing space. And now it's not as depressing, so that's a nice thing to talk about. Yeah. And my terrible pun. Yes, exactly. Yes, at uh, Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, we're equally about cancer, information, and terrible puns. (laughs) Well, I think that's uh, all we have to say on the subject. We'll leave links to the studies we've described below in the uh in the description um and uh if you've enjoyed the content uh please subscribe wherever you get your podcast got to fit that somewhere in josh i think that's in my contract um and uh we will join you next time for another uh foray into the world of oncology thanks josh thank you very much no worries and i hope you have a great week yes uh, a great week to everybody around all right goodbye <laughs>